Uh, it's my great honour now to welcome the super coach of Olympic swimming. They call him Super Bowl. He is the Bill Belichick of the pool. Michael Bowl has been at this for 33 years. Five successive Olympic Games he's coached at. Uh, extraordinary performance. The gold rush had started in Beijing. Steph Rice, three times gold. And most recently, Emma McKeon, who in Tokyo became our most successful ever swimmer. Michael Bowl, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Lockie. Happy to be here. Mate, it's, it's a, a great honour to have you on. Can I ask, you know, when you look at what you've achieved, do you ever get a moment, I know you're already back in training, you've just stepped away from the pool to join us on the show, and I appreciate that. Do you, do you ever get a chance maybe when you're sitting in the car, driving to work, and get to actually just sit for a moment and reflect on what you've done and think, gee whiz, it's actually pretty cool? I think you do that for a moment, but then I think if you're going to be successful at the next one, you've always got one eye on the future. So, uh, you know, even as we were getting to the end of Tokyo, I was thinking about, you know, Paris and who from our group is going to be there in Paris and, you know, who do I think within our ranks that we've currently got and maybe swimmers that are coming in, can we try and keep, you know, the relay baton pass on to the next group of people? So, uh you know, one eye on the present, but the other eye certainly on the future. Isn't that amazing? And, and is that the key to success, having that mental discipline? You know, in terms of, you hear people talk about, you know, in, in footy, uh, AFL or NRL, having a premiership hangover. You know, you have the ultimate success, you climb the mountain, but then you have the hangover after it. Is that how you've been able to keep it so finely tuned that you, you only allow that small amount of space in your mind for, for that celebration, but then it is into the, the next? I think you've got to, like, it's a very slippery precipice. I think, um, you know, having people performing at the Olympic Games, like, you, know, you see so many examples in the past of people who have done well from one Olympics and they don't back it up. Um, and, you know, as a coach, I guess you're always on tender hooks. You know, you've got to make sure. And, you know, we can't be working at 10 out of 10 with the kids who are at the Olympics at the moment, but there's other kids that just miss the team that that need to be in there clawing their way closer and closer to getting on that team in a couple of years once the Paris team's picked. So I think, you know, you've got to have a different mindset or a different philosophy for the athletes that you've got in your program. I think the older ones that have been to a couple of Olympics, it's a mistake to get them back in too quickly, but the ones who just missed um, are probably a little bit disappointed about missing. And, um, you know, those that are going to be successful in Paris are on the road there now. They're not going to wait till six months before to do something about it. They've got to get themselves going right now. And so, Michael, I mean, your career in and of itself is a fascinating study, uh, you know, transitioning from being a swimmer to a coach. I mean, and your history is fantastic. I mean, I know that you and Emma McKeon's mum, Susie, were on the 1982 Australian Com Games team together. You and her dad, Ron, used to swim together. Uh, he was the best man at your wedding. So there's a lot of history there. But can you take us through your journey from being a swimmer to being a coach? Yeah, I started swimming very young, I suppose, and uh, showed pretty good promise through the age groups, winning a lot of national age group championships through all strokes, except freestyle, actually, fly back. Breast. I think the best I ever got was second in freestyle, but won medley national championships as well. Won quite a few open championships, as you said, made the Commonwealth Games in 82, made my first team in 79, and my last team, Australian, in 1985. But unfortunately, never ever got to represent Australia. 1980 wasn't a great trials for me. Uh, there was the boycott in 1980, and the team selected was 
probably 17 or 16 swimmers. It was very small. Mm -hmm. I got a second position at those trials, uh, but non-selection. Non and then 84, I was ranked first in three events, um, 200 and 400 medal in the 200 backstroke, but uh, 1984 swam terribly at the trials. I think I got thirds and fourths, didn't make the team. I had a horrendous trials. So I think that's one of the drivers for me, I think, was just that non-performance by myself at those Olympic trials. And um, I think that was one of the, the things that probably, you know, made me or helped me uh, try and achieve that Olympic success via the athletes <laughs> by myself. So I think that's, I've, uh, you know, got a bit of, as they say, poo on the liver. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, luckily enough, um, you know, through the swimmers that you've had, was able to have sort of swimmers on teams in 92, sort of right the way through to current day, but got into coaching via a lady called Cheryl Humphreys, actually. She was an Australian representative swimmer. Her and her husband, Alan, at the time, had the lease of the University of Queensland Pool at St Lucia. And Cheryl was transitioning kind of out of coaching. She still loved coaching, but she had an inkling for art. She's an artist. Mm -hmm. And she still dabbled in coaching. She's still a very, very good coach within her own right. But she called me up and, and I was three quarters of the way through a physical education degree. So I had planned on finishing that off. And Cheryl called up out of the blue and said, look, um, I just don't feel like coaching at the moment. Can you come down to the pool? I think you'd make a very good coach. And I said, look, Cheryl, I'm not interested at all in coaching. I just want to finish off this phys ed degree and, and get it behind me. And, uh, you know, she, she was very insistent. Luckily, she was. Yeah. And she got me down to the pool. And I guess, you know, you just form that really quick bond and relationship with the swimmers that were in the pool there at the University of Queensland. Um, and I guess I just got hooked in and, and really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, 12 months down the track, I had a swimmer from the group, Warwick Mortensen, narrowly missed the 88 Olympic team for Seoul. He placed fourth and fifth, I beg your pardon, in the 100 free. And back in those years, they only took the top four. Duncan Armstrong in the 100 free was fourth and Warwick was fifth. Um, if Warwick would have been swimming nowadays, he would have been picked because they normally take... Mm -hmm. 600 freestylers, but Warwick missed it. And uh, I guess I got the bug and, and uh, just started coaching from there. And um, I never, ever finished off that physical education degree, but <laughs> I just carried on swimming since, swimming coaching since. You certainly have in fine style, the best you could imagine. Um, just back to what you said about the fact that perhaps there was that burning desire that didn't quite get fulfilled as a swimmer itself. And it's funny, if you look at some of the great coaches, for example, in AFL, the two best in modern history, Kevin Sheedy, famous for being a back pocket plumber, Alistair Clarkson, who as a coach, you know, one of the greatest success stories of all time as a player, it wasn't quite that way. Yeah. Do you think that that has actually helped you? Is it, is it a way that you form an, uh, that connection with the athlete? Because you know what the brutal agony of it's about. So you're able to, to tap in. Is there something in that, do you reckon? I think there is. Like all the, all the successful people I've coached in swimming that tried to go on to coach never, ever really made it because I think mm. they were so good. They didn't understand the battle you had to have to get better. And most people are are probably average to a little bit better than average and they've got a craft away and that there's a lot of hardship and knockbacks that they experience along the way. And I think a lot of the really good swimmers, a lot of swimming well comes naturally for a lot of the really good ones and they don't understand mm. the struggle 
perhaps quite as much. That's a very generalised statement, but, you know, quite often not. You know, you look at Dean Boxall, who's doing a very good job at the moment. You know, Dean, by his own admission, didn't quite make it. He made Australian junior teams but never got on to Australian senior teams. He gave up when he was about 18 or 19 years of age. And I think he's another one of those. He'll tell you the same thing, that, you know, he didn't make it. And that's the thing that, that drives him. He wants to get that success and he gets it via his athletes. I think there's a little bit there in, in uh, that as me as well. How special, uh, you look at the 2008 Olympic Games, uh, where it all came to fruition. Uh, Steph Rice, you know, took the world by storm. How special was it for you? I think you'd been coaching Steph for about four or five years. So you had that journey, you know, you'd been with her day in, day out, early morning after early morning to see her achieve such success. How special was it for her? But how special was it for you being able to, to get that sort of, you know, three gold in an Olympic Games? Extraordinary. Well, you know, Stephanie was just an outstanding individual. It was just a pleasure to coach her. Very, very focused, very hardworking girl. And, uh, you know, right from the moment she started training with us, you could see she just had that quality. You know, she was able to lift. You know, she's one of those athletes, the bigger the stage, the better she was. When she used to mm. compete at the local meets and, you know, the Brisbane Championships and those sorts of meets, I'd have to walk into the toilets when she was swimming because she just wouldn't. You wouldn't commit to the race. She'd just win it and wouldn't put herself out there. But, you know, when she got to state, she'd, she'd be better. When she got to national, she was outstanding. But internationally, when she knew she had to perform, she was just ab at her absolute best. Um, and I think, you know, being able to be part of her story, I suppose, um, you know, was just a great experience, you know, being over there in Beijing. But not only in Beijing, I think before Beijing at the trial, she broke both those world records at our trials three months before and um, you know she certainly put herself in the in the picture there as as you know one of the contenders for Beijing by those swims um, she had a great battle with a number of athletes over there in Beijing Kirsty Coventry from Zimbabwe who trained over in Texas for all of her collegiate career was one of her fiercest competitors and obviously Katie Hoff who was the world record holder she broke one of Stephanie's world records from the trials, we knew she was going to be very tough as well. But to see Steph on the biggest stage, uh, you know, line up, and it's very hard to win an Olympic gold medal, but it's even harder to win and break a world record. And and she she won three races, and they were all in world record time, two of them individually, but one as a member of the 800 freestyle relay. So it was just great to be part of that story. And, you know, 2007, the year before, um, you know, when you look back at history and think Katie Hoff, beat her at that meet in Melbourne by around about 10 seconds in the 400 medley. It's just unbelievable to think in the space of 12 months, she was able to go from 10 seconds behind Katie to actually beating her and breaking a world record at the meet. It's just testament, I think, to Stephanie's ability to, to chase a goal and, and actually attain it. That's fascinating. That 10-second differential, um, how do you claw each second back? In terms of the training regime that you had leading into Beijing, can you give us a bit of insight into how it was done? As you say, Steph, with that iron will. But in terms of the technical aspect, how were you doing it? Well, I think when I look back at the Melbourne World Championships in 2007, I've got to be honest, and Stephanie's admitted this, that she wasn't convinced the foreigner medley was one of her events until mm. Melbourne. And in the race, she was just in there. She was sitting in about third or fourth position all the way through. And then 
in the last 100 metres, she got a sniff of a medal and all of a sudden she just erupted and came home with an awesome last 50 to get a hand on the wall for a medal. And I think when she saw herself get a medal, by her own admission, she'd only semi-prepared for the 400 medley in the past. She didn't 100% believe that was an event that she could medal the following year in Beijing in. But when she stood on the podium there in Melbourne, I think the light was switched on in her mind. And I think with Steph, when she convinced herself that she was a chance of doing something, like you just had to really step back and, and just watch her go. So it was really looking at, at Katie and looking at her and seeing where Katie's strengths were. And Katie was an outstanding breaststroker and freestyler. And Stephanie's probably best two legs were the fly in the back. So we knew that if we could get Stephanie in front through that fly and backstroke leg and try and hold off Katie in the breaststroke and then hold her off obviously in the freestyle, that she was a chance of doing something in that 400 medley. And, you know, it was, it was a, it was a little bit of a surprise at the trials in 2008 when Steph broke the world record. Uh, but once she broke that world record in the 400 medley, I think that was another, another level of belief that Steph had in herself. You know, she, she really wasn't expecting to break that world record on the 400 medley at trials. But when that happened, I think mm-hmm. I and myself, I, I knew that she was going to be a, a, a real threat to Katie in that 400 medley when, uh, you know, when the Beijing Olympics came around. Fascinating. And what I'm getting from you with all these different stories is the role that that self-belief does play. Is that the key? You know, for all the physical, but when it comes to the very finite of the elite on the world stage, is that the one thing? I think it's one of the really big things. I think if I had to rank them, I think that's the number one thing. Like John Sieben, um, I used to train with Jono uh, in 84 before he won. You know, we were all training with Laurie and I used to pick Jono up every day during the school holidays in my car because his mum and dad were working and John would rock up in the front seat. He'd have a dollar's worth of mixed lollies and he'd (laughs) eat his way through those on the way through. But Jono is one of the most confident people I think I've ever met. His level of self-belief, he's only a short guy. He's about the same height as me, five foot nine, whatever that is in centimetres, 176 centimetres. And he was up against some of the biggest athletes you've ever seen in life. You know, Michael Gross from West Germany was the world record holder at the time. He was like six foot six or six feet seven. Jono wasn't ranked inside the top 10, but Jono 100% at 17 years of age in the lead up to LA just believed like we were all having a bit of a giggle that, you know, we couldn't believe how Jono was so confident he was going to do well over there because he was ranked so far back. Hmm. And I was watching the Olympics from home and to be totally honest, I, I could not believe that John O won that race. You know, he was fifth or sixth at the 150 metre mark to come home in one of the fastest last 50 splits ever. Like, you know, his level of self-belief is, is just on another level. And I think if you look at John O, he, no offence to John O, but he doesn't look like a supreme athlete, but you cannot win that gold medal at the Olympic Games if you're not a great athlete. But John O, his athleticism is, is, is good, but not great, but his level of self-belief is, is sort of second to none. So I think, you know, when you look at people that have been super successful, Duncan Armstrong's another one, supremely confident and believing that the hard work they did was going to be the thing that separated them from the rest of the field at a meet like the Olympic Games. And I think, you know, having been a part of pre- helping prepare Stephanie to get there, you know, she was prepared to do absolutely anything. I can still remember, you know, one or two months before, 
we did a little bit of a medicine ball routine after training. Like we do a dry land circuit before training that lasted about 20 to 30 minutes. We train six kilometers and she'd get towards the end of the session and she'd say, Bailey, can you do a little bit of extra med ball with me at the end? 15 or 20 minutes. And I'd say, yeah, no problem at all. And, you know, we'd be going 15 or 20 minutes. And the next thing I looked at my watch, it's an hour. And she's still wanting to go. And I'd say, Steph, that's enough. Mm. You know what I mean? They were, they were prepared to do the things that other people weren't prepared to do. And I think you can take it to an extreme that takes you over the edge. And I think that's the role of a coach is to know, okay, let, Steph, that's enough. Like she wanted to keep going and do more. But I think, you know, you've got to have, whether it's the common sense or whether it's the the gut feel to know when enough's enough. Um, so I think with the really good ones, they're prepared to do things that others aren't prepared to do. A lot of the others are prepared to talk about doing it, but the really good ones that do it actually do. Fascinating. That's, and that's such a, a beautiful insight into, into the athlete who can get it done when it matters most. Steph Rice, um, extraordinary performance in Beijing. Um, Steph's been in the media recently and, and really been courageous talking about you know, the struggles that she's had since that time. Um, can I ask you, and, and actually another, another a person who's been very courageous, uh, MC Bomb, who's come out since Tokyo, and she had just such a wonderful time. I think the whole of Australia was really just barracking for MC Bomb. She was a, a real heart and soul story of the games. And she spoke about the last few years... Uh, she had some struggles in terms of, uh, you know, eating and, and, and um, in terms of her, you know, uh, body, uh, you know, and, and some real demons on the inside. Uh, and one of the things in that article in The Australian that is credited with helping her get back on the right track was when she came across to yourself in 2019. How much as a coach, you're not only uh, coaching and nurturing the athlete, but you're also nurturing the human being. Can you tell us that dimension of it? Well, I think that's probably the most important dimension of it. Like, I think, you know, you're trying to make influence or you're trying to gain influence and make a difference with the people that you're coaching. And I think you've got to contact, you've got to try and make contact with them, whether it's a spiritual level or they've got to feel that you care for them as a person first and as an athlete second. So, you know, both those girls that you mentioned are, you know, you know, they're very important people to me. I think I've still got very good relationships with uh, both of them um, and I kind of like the fact whether it's a male or a female you're having that relationship after they finish swimming is really important to me and I think most of the athletes like 99.9% I feel I've got still a very good relationship with those people so it's something that I probably go out of my way to do to try and you know make that 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 contact with them you know you've got to try and unlock uh, the key to what that person is. Um, you've got to find out what motivates them, what drives them, why are they doing this? And I think if you can if you can get that contact with them, if you can get that relationship with them, they'll do anything for you. You know, they'll work hard, they'll do above and beyond what you're asking them to do if they've got that trust in you as a as a coach and mentor. So it's something that I try and do. I've only got about twelve to fifteen swimmers within my group so it's a lot different to footy teams that are a lot bigger and everything else but i've got about 12 or 15 people to work with and whether there's someone who's trying to get an olympic medal or whether there's someone that's just trying to swim a pb they're all important to me you know i feel that they've entrusted themselves with me and i feel responsible for the you know for the result that they achieve at the end of the season 
Extraordinary. I love hearing about it. And clearly that's what you're able to do to form that. As you say, it's like that spiritual sort of connection with them, that human level. It's amazing, isn't it? They are the greatest athletes in the world, but at the end of the day, everyone's human. And and you, the fact that you're able to recognize that, I think obviously that's what sets you apart from the rest. Um, hey, let's talk about Tokyo. So uh, I, I read a, a quote, um, and I, I love this, in terms of what the Olympic Games are. It's trying to get a predictable outcome in an unpredictable environment. They are your words. I mean, obviously, Tokyo, the most unpredictable of all because, you know, it was on last year, then it's off, then this year, you know, even up to the 11th hour, it could have been called off, but it wasn't. Um, and I also read that when you told Emma McKeon uh, that the games were off last year, that she was, you know, uh, I think the quote was she was just un- uncontrollably upset. And you can understand. I mean, she's going for gold. Everything's coming along. And then suddenly there's the ultimate spanner in the works. How were you and Emma able to sort of really reroute things and get it on track for, for what ended up being Tokyo 2020 this year? Well, I think you, know, you try and draw an experience. And Emma was at the last Olympics in Rio before Tokyo. And, uh, you know, she had, you know, probably a multitude of different feelings. You know, she swam well. She didn't swim that well. She swam a bit average in certain races. And I think, you know, the emotional roller coaster ride that's associated with the Olympics, I think, is a great kind of learning opportunity for people. I think she learned a lot of lessons in Rio that really helped her perform and perform so well in Tokyo. So I guess it's just remembering those things that happened and she was a lot more prepared uh, for what for what was going to happen this time. Like it's it's a very, very unpredictable environment. The Olympics, you know, we had to we had a training camp in Cairns. It was supposed to be two weeks. It ended up being three weeks because we had to escape Brisbane with, with lockdowns coming on. So there was an extra week we had to deal with in Cairns. Not that it's a bad place, Cairns, but uh, an extra week there. When we flew into the airport, it's a nine-hour flight from Cairns through to Tokyo. We had to sit around the airport for four or five hours and wait for the result of a COVID test sitting around. Like, there's a lot of distractions and things that you wouldn't normally experience in the Olympics, but I think the ones that dealt, you know, the people that were the most adaptable were the ones that were successful at the Olympics. And, you know, those things happened. Um, You know, there were buses that were late getting to the pool we were waiting in line in the hot sun some days for an hour an hour and a half waiting for buses you know we were all expecting everything to be on time like you know we associate with japan things running like clockwork but there were a couple of things there the first two or three days namely with buses uh that didn't go to plan that you know the ones that were calm and and didn't get flustered were the ones that that i think kept calm and and kept themselves very measured, didn't allow things to get them upset. So I think having that flat line of emotion Mm. coming in is something that you need to be able to do. You know, those that got really upset and and really put off their game by those things were the ones that perhaps didn't perform as well as they they quite should have. So I think, you know, you've got to be ready for those those unpredictable things that happen at meets like Olympics. I remember in Rio, it you know, it was a bit of a debacle with the things that were going wrong there air conditioning units falling off, uh, lifts getting stuck on floors, hot water not working, cold water not working some days, uh, not being able to, to you know, flush things down the toilet. You had to do what you had to do and put it in a, a bucket. Then three days later, it was cleaned out of your room. Just all those things that can get in your road if you let them, uh, you know, mm. sort of get in the road. So um, I think having the experience 
of Rio, but you know, before definitely helped Emma in uh, Tokyo. So that's probably the best way that I can describe it. But I think, yeah, you know, you as a coach, you know, you're there talking them through these little problems that are going to happen, and you're trying to prepare them for these little, uh, you know, things that are going to distract and get in the road in the lead up. So um, I think, you know, the more the more well equipped, the more calm you can stay in those situations you know just laughing about things going wrong i think just something simple like that um you know really helps get you through the hard times coming in interesting hey what about at tokyo i mean australia's most successful ever team i I read also uh rowan taylor head coach um at the training camp earlier in the year he split the team up into green versus gold and basically made the aussies swim against themselves and obviously driving that competitive spirit can you give us some insights into how this swim team became our greatest ever I think it's just a combination of a few different things. Obviously, we've got some coaches that are doing a very good job at the moment. There's a good mix of older, more experienced coaches and some young developing coaches coming through. Uh, They've got great athletes in their program. Um, I think the national event camp, as you mentioned, in February was quite quite a turning point for us. We hadn't had a national event camp for a couple of years. And I think getting that Getting that initiative back together again was really good. It really brought everyone together, the coaches, the staff, the athletes. And I think Rowan had the idea on the Tuesday morning, unannounced to the team, we're all having breakfast in a room. Some of the coaches knew it was coming up, namely Peter Bishop and myself, who were the head coaches for the green team, and Vince Raleigh and Simon Cusack, who were the head coaches for the gold team, knew what was what was about to be said. But Rowan dragged everyone together and said, guys, we're going to set up a challenge for everyone this morning. We all don't know what we're doing, but this is what we're doing. We'll split the team up into two, green and gold. We've selected people for events. It's going to be a relay competition. So no individual racing. Uh-huh. It's, it's going to be in a relay format. And you're going to get up, you're going to be scoring points for your team. There's going to be no money involved. It's just purely and simply racing and you're racing for each other. Um, and with, you know, the bus is leaving in an hour's time. You're going to go up to your room, get your suits. You're going to go to the pool at Bond University and, uh, you know, you're going to get behind one another and you're going to try and win the meet. And I think just the spirit that that was done with, I think the coaches, the staff, and most importantly, the athletes really got behind it. Uh, they all, represented and represented really hard like Kyle Chalmers at the time I I can still remember had a problem with his shoulder and he was absolutely livid that he wasn't able to swim because that's that's the environment that Kyle thrives in you know being Mm. in that relay and swimming for the team not just swimming for yourself and all the athletes that weren't able to race because they were injured were, were, were filthy because they weren't allowed to compete I saw Kyle on the side of the pool trying to convince his coach Peter Bishop to put him in but of course he wasn't allowed to swim so I think that day was just, it was just awesome. And, you know, just watching the way that the kids came together, I think the leadership group did a really good job of pulling everyone together. There were team chants and team cheers and there was fireworks going off and and there were people performing really, really well. They were getting in, they were backing up from, from one race to the other, which is something I know that Emma had to do at uh, Tokyo. So I was really pleased that she got the opportunity to race. I think she might have raced about five or six times over a uh, two-hour window. So I think, you know, practising that, which is what she had to do when she got to Tokyo, was really good for her from a, from a personal point of view. 
Well, I was just going to touch on that, like the fact that with him, you know, 50 uh, gold, you know, individual, and then straight out of the pool into the other pool, you know, get straight back in uh, to do the medley and win gold there. I mean, obviously that helps the fact that she'd done it before in that training camp, that practice of it. Um, what, what sort of preparation do you have for that? What are the last words you're telling Emma McKeon before she goes out to win a 50 and then has to turn around and go into the medley and, and the, the girls won gold there too? Well, I think this was all probably done over the last five years leading in. Like after Rio, we knew that Emma potentially would have had a very heavy schedule. So I think, you know, the way you set up your training week, mm. when you position main sets and main sessions and that sort of thing, and there's a fairly heavy, heavy emphasis in the program that I run where swimmers are trained to back up from, from one session to the other. So I think it wasn't just done in the couple of months before. It was done over the five years. You know, after Rio, there was a fairly heavy emphasis on getting our swimmers and most, most uh, you know, likely Emma, mm. with the training that she did, setting up in the training pool to be able to do that. So, um, you know, she goes from a pretty solid session Monday night she backs up with a solid one Tuesday morning. Tuesday night's very hard again. Wednesday in our week is a bit of a recovery session. Then Thursday, they're working hard again, both in the morning and the afternoon. Friday's a bit of an easy one. Then Saturday's a hard one to finish off the week. So training's one thing, but having access to athletes to be able to put under that sort of pressure at competitions is another thing. But I, I always say there's no better form of... of um, you know, racing than, uh, you know, racing. So, you know, being exposed to that high pressure racing back to back one race after the other is, is just a good way of practicing what she wants to do when she got to the Olympic games. In terms of the tech, the, the super suit era was, was a, was a, a you know, big time in, in swimming, the technology, the role that it plays now, I mean, watching the Olympic coverage, it was incredible. Uh, you know, the assessment, the analysis of stroke rate and everything as a viewer, you could see how much do you, incorporate that into your coaching the the analysis the data the the sports science yeah it's something you're using every week um you know we have a sports scientist that are coming to the pool and giving us a hand with what we're doing we've got a biomechanist who comes in and uh you know films does underwater footage of stroke technique stroke analysis we've got a girl comes in uh jess Caronis, that does a lot of work on um, skill acquisition so on starts turns and finishes but also on technique, uh, we have a diet nutrition expert coming in every couple of weeks, um, you know, talking about, uh, you know, what they need to be eating for recovery and those sorts of things. So that we're, we're, we're incorporating sports science into the program on a weekly basis. So it's something, I guess, the longer I've coached, I think, I think you said at the start, 33 years, that's about right. I think there was just about zero sports science in year one that I coached, but as the coaching has gone on over the years, I guess there's been more of a more of a integration of sports science into what you're doing. And I think in my mind, the two really big things, I think it's the video analysis, looking at the stroke, uh, I think is really, really important. And the skills have become more and more important for the starts and turns. So, you know, how we do the dolphin kick underneath the water, you know, there's big advantages in that. So it's something that we use on a weekly basis in the, in the program that I'm running at Griffith University. Well, I was just going to say, a last question for that program of yours at Griffith University on the Gold Coast, your school of excellence. Have you got a name for us for, that we don't, that in the general public, we probably don't know of, but one of your swimmers there who you reckon could take things by storm, maybe in Paris. Have you got someone for it, us to keep our eyes on? 
Geez, you put me under the pump here. Um, I think you know. There's a number of kids that are you know that are coming through. There's there's you know one boy that's not in the program yet. He's been training in Melbourne. His name's Bowen Goff, and he's been training. He was with Wayne Laws for a number of years. He's a 200 flyer. He narrowly missed the team, but uh, I think you know he's going to be one. I'm, I'm looking forward in the 200 fly with him to. Uh, you know, seeing what he can get down to and that. I think he's just really good technically. He's got a great attitude. He's been working really well. His coach, Wayne Laws, is looking at moving out of coaching. Uh, Wayne placed three swimmers on the team, um, you know, for the Olympics. He, he did a great job, but he's looking at sort of stepping back. So Bowen is looking at coming up training with us. And I think he's someone that can can get himself on that team if he keeps, you know, working and working really hard. There's another number of other athletes within the program. You know, we've got Lani Pallister in there. She's just missed the team. She's had a few health challenges. Um, you know, she's certainly one for the future as well. But, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping Cody Simpson can, uh, you know, step up. He's, he's really uh, had about 10 or 11 years out of the pool. He's been doing a little bit on his own. But being overseas, here it goes again. That'll be Cody calling just uh, seeing what you're saying about him. <laughs> Yeah, tell us about Cody and that journey. I mean, that in itself is an incredible, incredible thing you're pursuing. Yeah, well, I think, you know, he, um, you know, he was swimming at a very good level uh, up until the point when he stopped swimming and went over to the US to chase that musical dream that he had. And um, he spent probably the last 10 or 11 years chasing that. But um, he's kept himself very physically fit over there. He was always in the pool doing a little bit on his own, not with squads or anything. Um, just prior to him coming out, he hooked up with Brett Hawke and he was doing a little bit with Brett Hawke for maybe 12 months and got himself, you know, to a very good level. He started competing and, you know, for a hundred butterfly, he was 55, 54. He got down to 53 before he came out to Australia. He was only here for, for maybe eight weeks and made the Olympic final, a uh, trials final, I should say. 52.8 for 100 mm. fly and 100 free went 50.2. Mm. So he's swimming at a level that's good, but, you know, he's got to be better than that to make the team. He's got to drop two seconds in his 100 fly. So from 52.8 to 50.8, get himself in the 50 club for the 100 fly and the 100 freestyle. If he's going to be a chance of that four by one freestyle relay, he's got to be down in the 47. So he's still got a lot of improving to do, but, you know, you can just see with him, he's just got that, that edge. I was only talking to someone this morning about it. Like, you know, when we, when we train, he's one of those athletes, when we get up to do a series of efforts, he can always find that little bit when the pressure's on. And I think they're, mm-hmm. they're the athletes that invariably make teams and they're, they're, they're the athletes that get on podiums. You know, they're swimming at a great level, but they're able to lift when that pressure is at its highest. So he's still got a long way to go. He's still got a lot of mountain, a big part of the mountain to climb. But I think just in terms of his attitude, his commitment, his dedication to the sport, he's, he's up there with one of the best people in the group that we have at the moment. So uh, I'm very hopeful that, you know, Cody can keep, uh, you know, keep shaving tenths of a second off what he does and, uh, you know, give that team next year for Worlds and Commonwealth Games a bit of a shape. But his ultimate goal is obviously Paris. It's still two and a half years away, so he's still got time to keep those times coming down. We'll just have to wait to see how he improves. I guess that'll be the, the testament to what he's doing. 
Well, he couldn't be in better hands than you. You are the super coach of swimming. I appreciate your time so much. Michael Bolt, thank you. No problem, Loggy. Happy to help out.